Recorded live. Well, here we are. Uh, OTAs have begun. It's it's almost uh, Memorial Day, and it is a time, obviously, to think about those who made the ultimate sacrifice. And I had the great pleasure and honor of wearing the uniform of my country in the U.S. Army, and it's still one of the greatest times and great proving grounds uh, for me as a young man in my late teens and early 20s to start to figure out who and what the heck I was. And I was very lucky in that, though I did see a little tiny bit of combat, uh, with the exception of one hot shell casing, but down the back of my neck of my shirt, uh, I came out largely unscathed, both mentally and physically, which is not true of many of our combat veterans. So, obviously, I spend my mental and and physical self on things other than the defense of my country and, and have not had to think all too often of that, for me, brief time in uniform. But it is time for all of us, whether we've had a personal connection with the military or not, obviously to honor those that indeed did make that aforementioned ultimate sacrifice. And shifting gears, obviously, uh, I can't not mention the uh, Art Bryle situation at at Baylor. And uh, I am a fan. I'm not going to pretend I don't and didn't root for Art Boyle's success. And, of course, I don't think he'll be unemployed for very, very long. But the very term, lack of institutional control, was coined, invented, uh, described, created, whatever term you want to use, for situations like what took place at Baylor. It was pretty clear that there was a, a break, a rift, a gap. I mean, what term do you want to use? Um, a breach, a breach of trust, a breach of perspective, a breach of follow-through, a loss of perspective regarding what really matters. And as much as I love intercollegiate athletics, as much as I love the celebration of young athletes, these young men, and they are young men, like other college students, away from home, some of them for the first time or for the first extended period of time in their lives, and they are like other young men, testing limits, trying to discover who and what they are and all those things we talk about. However, uh, the sexual abuse of young women, uh, the assault of young women, the disrespect of young women, the treating them as spoils of war, for lack of a better way of putting it, happens all too often. Uh, I, I don't want to, you know, make this about my experiences, but I worked 
as a graduate assistant, as I've mentioned a few times in past shows at the University of Illinois, right after the Final Four flying Illini year and the second year that Jeff Doig is there. He had transferred after two years at Purdue, sat out one year, and then was eligible. And then this was, I got to the campus as he was heading into his final year of eligibility, and I was there the year that he got drafted. It is not news to anyone who's ever been around big time or even sometimes not so big time college athletics that things happen. Abuses occur. Corners are cut. Um, eyes are turned. Things that should not be allowed to continue are, in some cases, not only allowed, but encouraged to continue. Uh, but that being said, like I said, I. I hope that in the concern over the football program and, and Art Bryles and whatever else one wants to bring up as very much legitimate and vital, important concerns, I hope there's not a loss of focus on who the real victims are. Just as in, with Penn State, you know, whatever you might believe or not believe about Coach Paterno and Jerry Sandusky and you know, Frank Gamrick, longtime members of the staff, presidents, uh, you know, associates, directors, and directors of, of athletics. And, I mean, they, there are lots of people, if one's just trying to affix places to point one's finger, you will run out of fingers before you run out of places to point. But let's not forget that there's conspiracy, and at least in the case of Penn State, it was clearly a conspiracy. A conspiracy doesn't have to be organized. It may have been an accidental conspiracy of silence. You know, one person heard this, one person heard that. Maybe they told somebody, maybe they didn't. Maybe the person they told wasn't the right person. Maybe the person they told decided not to let it go any further. Who knows? But the point is that here with Baylor, as with Penn State, a culture of prioritizing what mattered to the victimizer as opposed to what mattered to the victim took hold, whether it be accidental, organized, ad hoc, who knows? Who's to say? Who is to say? But let us not forget, let us not fail to be aware of who the victim is, the actual, real, or victims, I should probably say, who the victims are. And like I said, this is not a show about that, but you can't not mention it. And I say this, like I said, with no joy. I'm a person that rooted for Art Bryles to be successful. I was excited when Art Bryles changed the plate tectonics of the Big 12. You know, it wasn't just Texas and OU, you know, year after year meeting, you know, when Texas A&M left, it looked like it was going to be, you know, sort of a, a two-team show, and then Baylor emerged of all places, right? Baylor with its previously, let's just say, less than super stellar uh, record in terms of I mean, making bowl games, 
was sort of a hit and miss thing, let alone, you know, contending for championships, et cetera. So, like I said, I have a feeling Art Bryles will not be out of a job for long. I hope that he learns some incredibly important lessons and that he, the staff, everyone associated, realize whether they think this is fair or unfair that they are not the victims. Uh, and that the football program, whether or not it is scathed, and of course one can assume logically that it probably will be hurt by this, that it deserves to be hurt. Uh, there was malfeasance by individuals that was on, all too often met with either indifference or in some cases perhaps even being abetted after the fact by others. And whether it be intentional, like I said, organized, ad hoc, accidental, doesn't matter. It ended up becoming a type of conspiracy, whether that was anyone's intention or not. Okay. And now back to our really scheduled talk about running back. Uh, people are excited, giddy, happy, um, whatever term you want to use, about the upcoming class of running backs. And without, I mean, with good reason, uh, without a doubt, this is one of the more interesting, exciting uh, I guess filled, you know, <laughs> packed, uh, I guess you could say, one of the more talent-packed and packed with the kinds of players that the NFL can use. There were some good running backs in this past class, but they weren't the kind of backs that you picture. When you picture a quote-unquote load back, a bell cow back, a uh, lead back, a number one, all those terms, those were the guys that popped in your head and you looked at this past draft class for the most part. I mean, Derrick Henry was big but almost too big, and then you you had a bunch of other running backs from Tyler Irvin to Kent Dixon who were seen fairly and unfairly as more like third down backs, and then you had Ezekiel who was just right, uh, and so, of course, was rewarded by going very, 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 very early in the draft there. Fittingly, in my mind, he was a top five prospect. He went in the top five. Nothing to see here. Uh, there were some people who predictably made noises about running backs going too early, that early. So, So if Ezekiel Elliott is indeed an elite player, and that's the question. And it's a fair question. That is the TBD is if he's elite or not. If he is indeed an elite player, 
then elite players get taken where he was taken. And I don't think, you know, sort of regardless of position, a lot of the, I think, to slowly show some of the prejudices about taking certain positions earlier, it's starting to break down. So, I'm getting into the 2017-2018, though a lot of the guys have probably come out early, class of running backs. Uh, there are a lot of running backs. <laughs> uh, not exactly a, a, a shock. Uh, just sticking with the seniors. I wouldn't be shocked if guys like Shock Linwood, who's actually a retro senior, uh, Janelle Pumphrey, who's a senior, so, you know, obviously a smaller back. Elijah McGuire, who's a terrific all-around running back. Uh, Justin Davis. Uh, D'Angelo uh, Henderson from Carolina. Anthony Williams from West Kentucky. Russell Shell, and Tariq, uh, from West Virginia. Tariq Cohen, who is sort of a space player in the you know, Darren Sproles kind of mold. Those are guys who potentially could go in the middle rounds. Trey Edmonds from Virginia Tech, Keel Lynch from Penn State. These are guys that might not even be early round guys. These are guys who might be mid round guys. Uh, because obviously, you know, though there's some, some good senior backs, it's the junior class, really. And most people are expecting most, if not all of them, to play. You know, Kareem Hunt is another guy I think is tremendously underrated. But it's the juniors. When people are talking about the running back class, they're not really talking about the class that's supposed to be um, available, uh, but the class that people are generally assuming will declare. And, and I'm generally against players declaring early, but the one great exception is that they are able to see that whether people do not like uh, running backs to stay all four years for the most part. It almost reduces your value. Fairly or unfairly, fairly. And it's funny because there's an understanding of almost every other position that you can keep getting better every year you're in college, no matter how good you are, with the exception of running back. And, you know, we'll see if people change their minds, come around, uh, you know, whatever about that. But, yes, yeah, so for the 2018 class, it is silly loaded. Uh, and, of course, like I said, many people expect most, if not all of them, of the early guys, the guys that are going to go early, expect them to actually declare and, you know, most likely leave. Some of those guys, I mean, every year there's one or two guys that people are sort of assuming will be in the draft who probably won't. And I don't assume that anybody's going to be in the draft until they declare, but, you know, obviously a guy like Leonard Fournette, it's hard to imagine what them any short of being really dedicated to winning a national championship or something like that, what else, you know, would he return for? What would be his motivation to return, obviously, is the question that one might ask. Uh, he is you know, a truly special running back. But he may not be the best running back of the class. I, I'm a big Dalvin Cook fan. I think he is something a little bit special. I think he's one of many backs for something a little bit special. Fournette is a speed and power guy with, with good feet. Uh, hasn't done a lot in the receiving game, but there seems to be reason to believe that he can catch the ball reasonably well. Nick Chubb is coming off of injury, but if he comes back full force, you know what can he be? Christian McCaffrey is, you know, some people think he's a third down back, some people think he's an every down back. 
Samaj P. Ryan is a guy that could potentially be a first-rounder, as could Jalen Hurd. It'll be interesting to see what happens with a guy like Elijah Wood that I think some people sort of sleep on. You've got the other Georgia backs, Sonny Michelle. Having mentioned Royce Freeman or Wayne Gallman as of yet, uh, you've got guys like Marlon Mack, who I think are massively underrated. Ray Lowry at ODU is a guy that's on my all-underappreciated team. This is the year that people are expecting Ty Isaac at Michigan. They're going to break out the transfer from USC. Uh, Joseph Yerby is a guy that should have a, a big year down at Miami. You know, and, and these are, once again, guys that potentially could go in the first 100 to 125 picks. And I'm not done. Uh, you've got Torian Fulton at Notre Dame, uh, who potentially could be drafted. Jarvion Franklin, another guy who's on my all underappreciated team, Jarvion Franklin from Western Michigan, part of the triplets there at Western Michigan. Their dynamic offense, Johnny Jefferson, joining Shockland Wood in the super explosive Baylor backfield. So there's, uh, almost forgot, John Hillman at Boston College, sort of an old school. You know, John Brockington, downhill, power back. You know, with a little bit of wiggle, but not exactly a make-you-miss guy. Uh, Rashad Penny at San Diego State. Ralph Webb, another guy who's on my own to appreciate team, Ralph Webb from Vanderbilt. Terrific running back. Not often discussed. Managed to scrape together. A lot of way of putting a thousand yard season behind, I'll just say a iffy offensive line. LJ Scott at Louisville is a guy that I have a mid round grade on, but could potentially go higher if he has a big year. Uh, I'm leaving people out. Oh, um, Kalen Crowder from uh, Missouri State, another really good back. You've got Devon Spaulding at Central Michigan. That's a guy that probably is a late rounder, but once again, could have a big year, go easier, uh, go easier, go higher. Uh, Miles Bram at Monmouth, another one of my small school guys is really good. Marcus Bagley. And one of my favorite small school, and that's a guy that I call the uh, Christian McCaffrey of the Southland Conference, is Keith Hetherington. I have a mid-round grade on him. I, I know most people don't. I, I'm probably his biggest fan. Well, at least maybe outside of, you know, his own school fan base and maybe his family and friends. But I, I, once again, you know, a couple of years ago when he was just, a, you know, a, a, a sophomore, I, I spotted him and I was like, you know, why is no one talking about this guy? Yeah, why why is no one talking about this guy? He's He's for real, <laughs> you know. It's, he is for real. That is a real, real running back. He's not super huge. He's probably not quite 190 pounds, and he's probably, you know, five eight and seven eighths, or five nine and a quarter, or something like that. But watch him, you know, in the open field. Watch him catch the ball, and watch him even in, you know, getting some of the harder yards. I mean, he's not just a space back. I think he can do, if not all of the, the things that you want, he can do a lot of things that you want. And, you know, obviously there's the obvious, you know, Danny Woodhead comparisons because of his size and, 
versatility and the fact he can return in the special teams portion and, you know, what can't he do in terms of versatility? And like I said, what brings you back to the sort of Christian McCaffrey of the uh, Southland Conference, as I sometimes call him, but that's a guy that I could see being drafted late. Though, like I said, I have a bit of a higher grade on him. I would, I, have a, I think he's a fourth, fifth round player, but potentially will most likely due to the sort of FCS, you know, perceptions. We'll probably go later. This is a really interesting running back class because you've got the big guy, a la Derrick Henry and, and Hurd, and some other big guys. There's a lot of 220, 225-pound backs. There weren't that many of that kind of back in last year's class, and that's, I think, the biggest difference that I notice when I just look at the class is how many guys are 240, 235, 230, 225, 226, 227, 228. There's a bunch of, you know, and, and a really, really great story. We have James Conner coming back at Pitt, and Whatever happens to him from this point forward, if he has a long and healthy life, that's a win. That young man is a winner if he has a long and healthy life. Football or no football. But I, I'm very excited about a lot of what this class has to offer. Now, I'll lump in, you know, fullbacks and tight ends as well, though this is a tight end class that isn't as, as perceived to be as weak uh, hopefully, in any of the senses of the word of last year's was, which, as we noted, uh, when I had James on talking about not just the perception of the class, but the actual com- composition of the class of tight ends, that their actual physical performances when they were tested at combine and pro days and like that was the weakest class in terms of lifting numbers that had been seen in many, many, many years. I mean, especially since you've had official combine numbers. So. That's interesting. And, of course, a lot of people say it's because so many of the tight ends just glorify possession receivers. And that's not news. I've been saying it for a while, and I'm not the only one. I mean, I'm not the first. I won't be the last. The only downside to that is that it means that at least to part of the field, your running game is sort of closed. I mean, that means that you either have to only play that person in certain situations or give up the ability to run to their side because that was the great exception. Um, the great, in, the, in the old days, you had a great tight end who was, you know, Don Hasselbeck or uh, Ted Qualick or Ditka or Mackey or, you know, even some of the more modern guys, like obviously you've got the Jason Witten, the great example, or Heath Miller, is that they gave you that top, that blocking, it was like a small tackle level of, of blocking in the offense and, obviously, the ability to go out and catch passes. Now you have guys who are, more often than not, not exceptional blockers, with a few exceptions. But, yeah, we will talk about uh, them as well and knock out a few more of the, you know, more, quote-unquote, slept-on running backs in the class. Uh, at Kentucky, you have an interesting situation. I, I noticed Stanley Boom Williams. Uh, I guess it was last year, if not year before last. And, you know, Kentucky's offense can can be a land of struggle at times, no matter who's back there. You know, like a lot of times people get mad at, you know, their quarterbacks or their running backs, whoever it is. But for whatever reason, they have had issues 
in their offensive line. It seems like almost, not just con- consistently, but almost constantly of the past five or six years. It was just if they won, you know, decide to be more of a running team, which I would certainly advise if they can pull it off. And then, two, if they can effectively do it. Everybody talks about running the football, but it's a lack of effectiveness that chases people away, you know, that keeps them from maintaining their quote-unquote commitment to the run that you would always hear people talk about back in the day. I briefly mentioned Elijah Wood and Wayne Goldman, but the ACC alone in Dalvin Cook, uh, Elijah Hood and Wayne Goldman could potentially have three running backs if you go in the top 50, if they should all have the kind of years I'm anticipating, and if they should all declare. And that would be big time. I'm trying to remember the last time the ACC... Oh, and Pitt. Pitt in the ACC, though, I don't think James Conner could go quite that early. Uh, but potentially, he could go in the top 100 to maybe top 150. Yeah, I keep forgetting. I, I actually literally forget that, that Pitt is in the top uh, Because it just seems so foreign to me, having grown up with, you know, sort of a more traditional ACC that... I remember mean, when... Virginia Tech wasn't the ACC. You know, the original ACC to me, when I first started following it, was just UNC, NC State, Georgia Tech, Clemson, UVA, Maryland. So slowly but surely, the ACC is adding teams. Uh, the big gets were, of course, Florida State and K-Tech. Some of the Otter gets a bit, I mean, for basketball, it makes sense, I guess. You know, Syracuse and Pitt are terrific, you know, amazing uh, basketball programs and capable of being good football programs. Syracuse was once an absolute monster. Uh, you can go back to the Ben Schwartzwalder days, Ben Brown and Eric Davis, and then obviously more recently you have when Christian Searson was there, you know, Marvin Graves and Don Searson. Donald Nat, Troy Nunes, and you know, that whole bunch that ran that fascinating freeze option. But getting sort of finishing up with the running back class, there's enough big backs that, you know, as best James Cover would say, if you like big backs and you cannot lie, there's big backs of plenty. Many, several and uh Various, I guess, the term one might use in terms of that. So, in addition to all of the talent you see sprinkled throughout the SEC, which obviously has Hurd and you know whoever ends up being the lead guy out of Alabama, who's going to probably be an all-conference type of running back because that's kind of what they do, and then you throw in you know Fournette who has a chance to be one of the first players taken in next year's draft. Uh, once again, we're all assuming he declares, and it's probably a pretty safe assumption. You've got Prime. Uh, obviously, Joe Nixon, Joe Nixon has transferred. Uh, USC will have a couple of running backs. Their best running back is not yet drafted with Ronald Jones, but the so Thunder and their Thunder and Lightning combo is Justin Davis. He has a chance, though probably sort of later in the draft. It will be a very, very interesting draft pass at running back.
And though the tight end class, you know, doesn't vaguely resemble the running back class, it is a better class and probably a stronger, literally, figuratively stronger class than the one we had last year. Jake Butt is a guy that a lot of people are excited about, and with good reason. Uh, Mickey Crum, I guess, is technically... No, he isn't. He's a true sophomore. Um, but yes, just amongst some of the interesting tight ends, obviously O.J. Howard is a guy that many people are projecting to the first. Uh, we've all been sort of waiting you know, for him to arrive. You know, we hear each year, his freshman year, we were expecting him to sort of you know, announce himself, and he had two or three big games, and then, you know, as freshmen often do, he was little seen and heard in many other games, and some of that can be blamed on the quarterback situation, play calling, whatever. But we get to the next year, and it's like, okay, well, this time, you know, for real, we're going to see O.J. Howard. He, once again, had two or three really big games and then would be, it's not invisible, and it's only way less evident in other games, less less impactful, less less of a, I mean, once again, we're talking about a guy that when we talk about a dominant prospect, and dominant prospects should dominate. So last year, you know, hey, we were all betting on it. I mean, I was in, everybody was in, like, okay, this is the year. They got a better quarterback situation. You know, Coker can do a little bit more with arm-wise than Sims, and no excuses for real this time. O.J. Howard, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, once again, I mean, he's, he's improving. He's taking steps in the right direction, but you know, was he dominant? Was he unstoppable? You know, was he a guy who week in and week out looked like a guy you had to take in the first 25 picks of, you know, the draft when he when he finally does, you know, into the draft? Uh, no, frankly, he did not always look like that guy. He didn't always look like the guy that you had to take. We can't we can't wait. We can't wait until the second, or we can't sit here at 31 and let him fall to us or whatever. He, he looks like a guy that you could wait, <laughs> maybe even to the early second, definitely into the end of the first. And obviously this will be, you know, here we go. <laughs> I know you've heard this all before, but this time for real. Take it away, OJ. So, uh, O.J. Howard is a guy that's perceived to have it all. He's a, a good blocker. Just ask Leonard Floyd. Uh, I wouldn't say elite, but above average. Uh, good, solid, productive NFL-type blocking tight end who can clearly run and catch Now, the question that can fairly be asked and probably should fairly be asked, uh, one is, you know, well, why, why why, now? What's going to change? You know, we've all heard how, you know, his, at the end of his freshman year, Kiffin said, yeah, we got to give him the ball more. At the end of his sophomore year, Kiffin said, yeah, 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 we got to give him the ball more. <laughs> like he, we've heard this all before, all the promises, and, you know, we've all seen you know, he's working hard, he's improved in every area. I mean, we've, we've heard it all before. Now it just has to actually happen. And obviously this is it. You know, it's not just another opportunity for it to happen. Uh, this is, 
this is the guy. Um, I mean, if you don't, it is unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that if he doesn't show, you know, measured improvement, uh, significant improvement, it's unlikely that it's going to come that much later. It does happen sometimes. The tight end, particularly, uh, production is less predictive at that position in terms of future success than essentially any other position in football for whatever reason, partially because the the things that it takes physically to become a tremendous tight end have become so demanding uh, that those potential freaks can come, you know, can come from guys that weren't super productive if they are super something else, you know, great body control, ridiculous athlete, fast, strong, powerful, great hands, and all that stuff, you know, eye-hand coordination. And, you know, they have everything at an elite level. <laughs> then they've proven to be successful without having – sometimes even played in college, but without having been dominant collegiate players. Now, obviously, Tony Gonzalez was, you know, he was both. He was the uh, size and the athletic coordination, body control, blah, 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 blah. You know, every – all the boxes are checked, and he was really productive. But we've seen success, and sometimes a great deal of success from guys that didn't have all the boxes checked that weren't, you know, all the things you were looking for in terms of polish, production, consistent performance, all that stuff. And like I said, for whatever reason, the position where that seems to matter less than every other position in the game is tight end. And as I said before, the the whys seem to be attached to the this very specific physical things it takes to become a really terrific tight end nowadays. But uh, you know, to quite a phrase, but uh Jake Butt is one of the guys that's a little more traditional. And when I say traditional in terms of, uh, one, you know, traditional career path, you know, he's actually sort of done all the things you look for in terms of, like I said, being, you know, productive and fairly well-rounded and well-coached and brought along, you know, sort of traditional tight end kind of way, playing for a coach that traditionally likes to traditionally use tight ends to, in a traditional fashion. Uh, he's, he's sort of a throwback in certain ways and, once again, a legitimate blocker. You know, maybe not a devastating blocker, but a legitimate, productive, successful blocking tight end who's blocking looks like it would project successfully, you know, it's pretty much right away to the NFL if you want to use him as a sort of quote unquote old school in line Y where he is right there taking on linebackers, maybe helping out a tight end in a double team situation, but you know, doing the things that all the tight ends of the past did in essence. Doing all those things. He's built for that. He can do that. And there's also a good enough receiver to be a guy who gives you a lot as a receiving tight end. So, uh, 
obviously I spent a lot of time on the top two guys, uh, but they're not the whole story. There's other guys. Uh, maybe they aren't quite where those two are, but there's certainly others worthy of mention. So sticking with, I guess, seniors first, and then I'll, I'll delve more deeply into the, some of the juniors who people are expecting to declare early. So as was mentioned, there's been places that maybe the term tight end factories is exaggerating. Uh, the position rarely lends itself to a factory setup, though. For a while there, I guess you could say that Miami was getting close to being a place that could call itself tight end university, but then that's dropped away. Uh, USC had a bit of a run. Stanford is probably the closest one could name to a place that has legitimate claim probably at the very moment to call itself TEU. They certainly have had a good number of draftees uh, come out and a few guys that are going to draft leads are going to stick around for a while coming from the U. I remember one year uh, a young man Epps Brandon Epps, something Epps, who wasn't even a starter. He was a backup type. <laughs> um, and he gives up traffic. But just thinking with Jake Budd, O.J. Howard, Jordan Leggett, and Evan Ingram was sort of a move tight end type, as is uh, Billy Freeman. A guy I really like, of course, is Jeremy Sprinkle, who I think is probably my number two or three tight end at the moment. But just mentioning those guys, those are all guys, every single one of those guys they named, would have had a shot at being the first tight end in the, in the last draft. So that will give you an idea, I think, of the, the talent discrepancy between 2016 at tight end 2017. Even outside it, over uh, Taylor McNamara, I mentioned, you know, the tradition at the position at tight end for USC, which dried up a little bit, but might sort of make a comeback. Uh, Josiah Price is another sort of old-school, Heath Miller-ish kind of tight end, you know, the guy that your father would recognize. Sticking back to uh, Miami, you've got Standish Dugobart, who's not a starter, but some people are somewhat excited about him, or let's say starter, not a primary tight end, whatever term you'd like to use not the guy at the position. But still, he has a combination of size, reasonably good athlete, a guy who could certainly be on an NFL roster. Amongst the, the small tight ends, one of my favorites is uh, Jenna Smith, Florida International, member of my only appreciated team. I think he's about to have a big year. I think he might be amongst the top, maybe even the top, receiving time and the nation comes with just few numbers of targets and reception. He is a smaller guy. He's not likely to be able to hold up to being a, a full-time, full-service tight end, more of a, you know, sort of Delaney Walker mole kind of guy or Dijon, um, what's his name again? Dijon Robinson. But there's a place for guys like that. And that place has, in fact, been growing practically every year for the past 25-plus years. 
Uh, a few more guys. Wyatt Houston from Utah State is another interesting sort of larger, full-service kind of guy. Johnny Munt is one of a couple of Oregon tight ends that have a chance. Uh, Evan Bayless is the other one. I prefer Munt, but Bayless tends to be more, high, more highly rated. Joe Everett from South Alabama is another guy that's sort of a little move type tight end. A few other guys worth mentioning include uh, Dan Bustle from San Diego State, who is a pretty able blocker. Sean Calkin from Missouri. Miami has a couple of tight ends. Uh, Keith Crawbridge is not even their best tight end, but he has a shot maybe to be drafted later or as an undrafted agent. Make a team. George Kittle. Another guy who I think finds a way to hang around. Uh, Andrew Isaacs at Maryland. Uh, Dakota Jackson is the other guy at Virginia Tech. Uh, the older tight end. Obviously the person that the tight end that people are most excited about I will be discussing in a moment as we get to the um, junior class of tight ends. Well, just a couple more and I think are worthy of mention. Uh, P.J. Gallo at Maryland, also Maryland, so another small move type guy. Uh, Steve Donatello at Wake Forest, so I think that's related to the uh, coach of the well, not same name, but of the same last name. Uh, Gus Whaley is sort of a movable piece, and all those six, two and a half, two hundred thirty-six pound dudes. Uh, Stale Falakalatonga. From Utah, so I got it. Pretty good blocker. Not surprisingly, he's another guy a little older than some, but good player. Uh, Colin Thompson from Temple, another guy that I think will make a team. Uh, and Kiefer Bucker from Good State. Once again, another one of small, move around kind of guys. And Michael Roberts from Toledo. Amongst the Junior class of 2018, but some of these guys will likely be early declarees. Uh, you've got a good sprinkling of talent there as well. Amongst them included, you have a, a few of the jokers, I guess the term that very often you hear used. Um, guys that may occasionally line up in the backfield, particularly with the, the death of the fullback. Uh, a lot of times you don't even see fullback ratings in certain places, but yeah, Bucky Hodges, the guy that people are super excited about, and Eric Cotton from Stanford, uh, Jeb Blazevich from Georgia. Uh, Bucky Hodges is a project. He's a big kid, you know, about 249 pounds, probably like six four and three quarters, but some people, you know, see him with his 6'6". I mean, who knows? He's big, but by having a big frame, it's not much of a blocker. Still some of a project. I can see the components that excite people. Size, speed are all things that are going to excite people. But to me, he looks like a guy who really is, you know, obviously the tight end is not to matter, so maybe I shouldn't say he needs you know, more polishing, more seasoning, more whatever, because I guess the tight end, who cares? But I uh, still would like to see him stay in school, though he probably won't. Uh, I have a couple more guys that are worthy of mention. 
uh, Thuringi from Wake Forest. So we've got a couple of tight ends there. Uh, also, you've got Ethan Wolf from Tennessee, Brandon Lingen from uh, Minnesota. Also worthy of mention is uh, another Minnesota tight end in Duke, Ian Watt, Ian, yeah, Ian Wu, uh, who's another sort of smaller move type guy. DeAndre Goolsby is the other Florida tight end. Florida has a couple of project types at tight end. A uh, guy that I'm interested in is Jake Rowe from Boise State, who's little, you know, about 22 pounds and about six two and a half, but uh, he, I think he's going to produce this year. Uh, Mike Giusecki, doesn't he sound like a tight end from Penn State? So that's a guy that should stay in school and probably will, but talented. The tight end class probably won't be as weak physically or figuratively as this last one was, but I don't want to see superstars to be had as well. Though obviously, O.J. Howard's the guy that most people will designate as a potential superstar. And Bucky Hodges, you know, we've all agreed, has a lot of components. He has not thus far put all those components together into being an elite-level athlete at the tight end position in terms of, like I said, production, blocking, always running routes the right angle and depth, and all those little finer points that, you know, frankly, you often don't see in guys who are projected to tight from another position, whether it be wide receiver, whether it be, you know, the outgrew being a running back, or they came over from defense, or played both in high school, and, you know, like I said, they you know, were an outside linebacker for a while, but now we have a needed tight end, or he was better at tight end, whatever it is, whatever the reason is. A lot of those things you see in a guy who just is settling into the position, you see those things in Bucky Hodges. And this, once again, could be his year. He might be an unstoppable, you know, weapon of mass destruction at tight end and, you know, shut my mouth and be a conventional American and be the best tight end in the country and blow O.J. Howard and Jake Butt and whoever's going to make it out of the water. But I'm still taking a cautious optimism position. On Bucky Hodges, I don't think he's a slam dunk first rounder by any stretch of the imagination, and he could even end up out of the first. Not so much because he does anything wrong, but just because he might not be quite ready. Now, obviously, like I said, for some reason, you don't always have to be super prepared, super coached up, or whatever you want to use uh, for some people to to have that level of excitement about potentially a particular player or things like that. Sometimes it gets a little early. I don't know what you're going to use. Uh, people get a little preliminary, a little too excited sometimes about certain players. But uh, certainly amongst some of the guys we've discussed, some of these guys, some of the players, some of those prospects will be early draftees. Some of them will find themselves on, you know, bad teams, as you often point out, which is where you send great players when the draft falls around. But, yeah, I think Fournette is a guy who you know, pretty much is a lock. Uh, not to go in the first, but to go in the top ten or so. You know, then you've got 
sort of a bit of a drop off, maybe. I think Dallin Cook is probably somewhere in that same discussion, not long behind, or maybe even a little bit ahead. We'll see what happens. Uh, of Cornette, that's in that position where I think people are very much aware of him. Ah, I believe he's been joined by gentleman James Coburn. How are you doing, Jim? Uh, pretty good. Well, I hope you are preparing for and will have a safe, enjoyable, but uh, very much uh, power-packed uh, Memorial Day weekend where you get to bond with your family, reflect on those who may be also in sacrifice, and perhaps even watch some game tape. Yeah, we actually, uh, for you know, for Memorial Weekend, we bought 20 pounds worth of shrimp. And oh, I got to say, 20 pounds worth of shrimp is not something, it's a lot of, it's a lot of shrimp. It's not what I could say. But, uh, <laughs> so we, we, we got that. So that's basically most of most of this weekend is yeah. that. Yeah, that is a lot of shit. That is somewhere Bubba Gump is smiling. Yes, exactly. And, of course, we're bringing the sacrifice of all the men and women that just and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but as Correct. you know, the, in the United States, we, we tend to turn most, you know, uh, every holiday into consumerism, uh, eating... <laughs> Massive quantities of food, yeah. uh, alcohol. Eventually, 9/11 uh, will become a holiday so, that will be mostly so, dedicated so are you saying, to. Are you are you saying that one day you're going to see somebody's as a say, grab our explosive 9/11 savings? Yes. Oh, and oh I hate to say that, but I I, I just I have. A feeling, a hunch, because again we we tend to turn. It's like Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo was a legitimate holiday. Well, not, well, not a minor battle, but I mean it was a. It's a minor it, battle. But, it was a somewhat minor battle in a war that I don't think most people even fully understand. Quite frankly, <laughs> that's true. But my point is this: nobody knows anything about Cinco de Mayo except for like maybe you and a few other people in society. Even people of the Hispanic persuasion probably don't even know 100% what Cinco de Mayo is about. Well, they tend to, well, they tend to know what it's about. They don't understand why it's a big deal. Like it's a much bigger deal here than it is in Mexico. I have many friends who are Mexican and they're like, yeah, we celebrate Cinco de Mayo, but nothing like this. <laughs> exactly. So, just saying, like 9-11 will eventually become a holiday, and yes, we will have get your explosive, get your explosive. <laughs> now. Oh, God. Oh, I do yeah. love this fascinating and sometimes disgusting country of ours. But, um, but yes, uh, I talked a little bit about uh, the Baylor situation in Art Bryles, and I mentioned I was a fan of Art Bryles, but I also made it very clear that you know, Mark, Art Bryles is going to find him a coaching job very quickly, and he'll be fine. Uh, there are actual victims who have been actually victimized. Oh, yeah. Apparently, allegedly, apparently, whatever you want to throw in there to make it clean or, you know, clean it up, uh, make it oh, yeah. acceptable. It, but it, it made me think about a lot of things, only because 
you know, we've had the Sandusky stuff. Uh, we've yep. had the James Winston stuff. It's not to say that he he may have done something. He may not have done something, but they, they well, we'll never. Really well, here's the here's the point. Correctly. Here's here's right. Here's the point. We'll never know. That's the sort of frustrating thing with James Winston is we'll never know. We will never actually know because they'll never. You can't. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. That is that that whatever did or didn't happen. No one will ever be able to adequately, except for like the two people who are there, will ever be able to adequately because of how badly botched everything was. There's no way to even reconstruct. It's just frustrating. Exactly, uh, and and you and you get and it took me to even uh, cartoons, which is kind of silly, but just there was an episode of the show called Rick and Morty where there was a jelly bean that uh, sexually molested people, uh, and I know it's really absurd, but it, it at the end of it, it's basically like we need they they find photos of him you know, doing things to people and they're like, they burn it and, you know, we, we should remember him for what he represented and not for the jelly bean he really is. Uh, and that, there's just a lot of that going on. Even even as much to the sort of, you know, again, when you have institutions, you have people trying to protect the institution uh, or, or even people who represent big things, what they do you know, what they do as a person versus what they're represented or what they represent is kind of a tricky thing we have in, in society, I guess. Like, so basically it's like, how do you separate the art from the artist? Right. That makes any sense. Because, you know, like, you may like a piece of art for a football player on film or a coach and how he, what he does, but then you find out that he did all these terrible things off the field or outside of the, of the thing, and, you know, how you react to that says a lot. Because uh, some people go, oh, I don't care, or, you know, I, you know, how could somebody who does such beautiful things, you know, do such horrible things, you know, stuff like that, but... Oh, well, yeah, I mean, well I, this is where being a historian definitely helps, because history is filled with people like that. In fact, most of the great people throughout history had a dark and sometimes incredibly dark side in a few cases to, I guess, almost balance out their greatness in other areas. I mean, the list is nearly endless of oh, yeah. super flawed, but, great, great people. But of course, the thing with our brows, I mean, there, there's a lot more stuff. In college football in general, there's a lot more stuff that college football can do a lot better uh, in terms yeah. of Improving uh, things involving sexual assault, sexual violence, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Very, very subtle. And I don't like to call it rape culture, but the whole little thing of, hey, let's get a bunch of people drunk and, you know, have sex with them because they're drunk, right, guys? You know, that type <laughs> of culture. Well, I mean, that, that, that is, you just described it. That would be. Culture is built built on boring innovations, which I guess all the people the chance to be sick. But the, the point is that we have the combination of the power dynamic that goes with being a big time football player, 
but changes your normal student power dynamic. I've been around, you've been around, we've all been around it. We've been around college campuses where big-time college athletes are, and it tilts the field. It tilts interactions. More people know them, obviously. More people care about what they do and don't do, obviously. And not surprisingly, if not all of them, but many of them have a certain expectation of receptance, privilege, approbation, and, you know, whatever else you want to sort of throw in there on the tail end from what we see with Manziel to what we saw with, I mean, there's a long, long, and it's not recent. I mean, you know, you can go back to the oh, no. 1950s and what, 60s and whatever and find always, guys. Who, it's always existed. It's just, I, you know, as, as anything else, I mean, when you add social media, you add the world we live in, which is everything is at our fingertips. Literally, you know, there's almost too much information that stuff that normally would just maybe a part of a town would know about would get out to everywhere within minutes, you know, seconds even, you know. Right, right. Because that's just how it gets. There's no, <laughs> can't hide anything these days in this world <laughs> unless you take away all the, all the cell phones and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, uh, Which would be hard to do. Yeah, very hard to do. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, while I am, as a fan of Art Browse, I am certainly not happy that he no longer is employed. I completely agree. And it seems like what went on at Baylor was almost a dictionary definition of the quote-unquote loss of institutional control. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to set the example. You have to, you know, put a, put a line in the sand saying this is not okay. Also makes Charlie Strong look a little better. Well, because he was trying to clean the up a little he, bit right, of right. Right, the reason he cleaned house and got rid of all those guys is because they weren't his kind of guy. But yeah, I mean, I you know, it is what it is. You know, yes, it's kind of like this broad is gone. It's it's such a sad way to go, out, especially for a guy who, you know was at a program and literally Baylor is the, Baylor is what we think of Baylor now as Brown. Right. You know? But not that long ago Baylor is what how we thought of Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean it was not that long ago that Baylor was Vanderbilt. It's not that long ago that Baylor was Baylor wasn't competing for national championships. Right. You know? Right. But I mean Baylor was in the Purdue not that long ago. <laughs> My point is that they were Purdue of their conference not that long ago. Yeah. You know, so that's why I believe that Art Bryles will not be unemployed for long, quite frankly. Hey, I might end up in the NFL, you know, with the Cleveland Browns, maybe. Can hear from somebody, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that was, you know, sort of something that was a news and note that I felt couldn't go without mention. And obviously OTAs is begun, which means, you know, injuries, obviously. You know, it's just as the swallows return to... San Juan Capistrano. Uh, yep. The OTA is bringing to us, of course, injury. Uh, and as Doug, I mean, Doug Whaley got in trouble, but Doug Whaley's not wrong. I mean, he said what everyone thinks. You, if you were to somehow tap into the inner mind of 32 GMs regarding injury and violence in the NFL, 
though the wording might be somewhat different, I can almost guarantee you that 29 out of the 32 would have thought, would have had a response similar to that Whaley. Whether we like it or not, that's what football people think of football. Oh, what did Doug Whaley do? Oh, okay. Huh. Um, I've been busy this, doing other things, but uh, yeah, we've all, we've all been, yeah, we've all we've all been busy doing other things. Uh, somebody I think was interviewing Doug Whaley about I think OTAs, or maybe it's better than something else. But they were sort of asked about you know injuries and blah blah blah, safety and whatever. And you you know sort of dealt with the question that he kept going. You know, he's always dangerous, keeping going, <laughs> but. Uh, he simply said, and please don't, I'm not quoting him exactly, but football is a violent sport, always has been, I believe, despite all the, you know, changes we made in the interest of safety, it always will be, and I think it's supposed to be, or something along those lines. Oh, and, yeah, that's true. Yes, exactly. But there was still a firestorm of controversy, because it's a slow period, I guess. There was still a firestorm of controversy of man says obvious thing about games he's been around his entire life. You know, <laughs> sort of what I sort of walked away thinking, like, oh, like you could, if you could have gotten every single GM in the NFL to respond to the question honestly, you would have gotten almost exactly the same response. Yeah. Um, almost yeah. all. Because it, it gets into the whole, I don't want to say domestication, but football is in a weird place of where we're kind of trying to domesticate it at the same time. We're like, no, don't do too much. Like, we're not going for – we don't like wolf anymore, but we want something in between. We don't want a puppy. <laughs> or a poodle. We want, or poodle. We don't want a poodle, but we want something that can hold its own and kill stuff, but not, you know, out of the love of killing you understand what I'm saying? Now, like, basically, that that's where we're at, as a, at least as a football society. We're at the point where people have to realize that, that football is not a game that, that, if you're talking about social progress and, you know, stuff like that, or to the point of where we just all love each other and we don't, you know, hurt each other and stuff like that, football's not that type of thing. But at the same time, uh, I, I just think, yeah, it's, it's a violent game. It's always going to be violent. Um, the differences that you have, as you know, I mean, there's a segment that goes, well, it's violent, it causes all these injuries, so we should just stop playing it. And then you have the other side, which is, well, there are some benefits to playing football and all that kind of stuff. So, but we're we're still there. I don't know. Just the way the way things are going, you never you never know. But that's, I mean. People bring up sort of like that all the right. time. Yeah. I mean, when, when someone says something as sort of common sense as human beings weren't actually built to play football, what human beings were built to, you know, to engage in wars. Human beings were – we do all kinds of things you weren't built to do. <laughs> um, going into outer space. I mean, there's a long list of things that humans do that we probably weren't exactly intended to do. I, 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 I was with those other people who were like, how is this a controversy? Uh, but like I said, it helped that it was a sort of a slow period. You know, there's there wasn't a, another bigger thing going on at the same time. That's what hurt him. You know, if you're if it's 
you know, um, Tuesday in late May and it's in the morning and you say something that conceivably. Although, I will say this, though. I will say this, though. If you're a general manager of a football team, I would rather just not talk to the press. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think for Right, and I think for a while, Doug Whaley will probably not say much to anybody about anything. This <laughs> is probably about it for him for a while. You know, once burned, twice shy. Yeah, and the but I mean, I think is, it's, just, it's just that people may take the context, they might take the quotes out of context and go, oh, he doesn't care about his players. Well, look you know, the money, you know, like something uh, like that. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, when you say that you mean are supposed to play or whatever, I mean, I don't think it's illustrated at all lack of charity. Like I said, he's illustrating that he understands this is a trade-off. You're doing this unnatural, dangerous thing. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't know if it has to be charity. I think it simply illustrates his understanding of the truth of the situation. You know, if you drive Formula One, though it's a lot safer than it used to be, you know, <laughs> you aren't meant to survive the crashes they have. Now, they advanced the technology in such a way that most of the time people do survive, even, you know, these 220-pound crashes, 220-mile-per-hour crashes that sometimes happen in Formula One where you hit a wee uh, uh, wall or whatever. I mean, nowadays, people survive it with an amazing regularity, which is a testament, like I said, to the advancement of technology when, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, it wasn't so much, you know. <laughs> you know, it clearly could be lights out for you every time you strapped up and put yourself in the, you know, strapped that car to you. Um, you knew this could be it. Now, it isn't quite that in football, but you know it's taken, I mean, we've, we've always talked, we've talked in the past about studies on long time, long term, Life expectancy and you know, all the other stuff. You know, it's it is it's not killing you fast most of the time, yeah. but if you play long enough, it's probably contributed to you not living as long, and almost certainly it's contributed to you having, you know, later in life health issues. Oh yeah, but I mean, like anything in life, man. And plus, you know, I hate to say we're men, but we're men. You know, we do stupid yeah. things, so. Or, or things that are threatening to one's life and long-term health. So, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I, it, it, I don't, it, it's the off-season. I guess you don't have any. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> really right. Out. So we're going to go up to Doug Whaley because of his comment about the dangers of football, which, yeah, there's dangers to football. And and the thing that kills me is that then he has to go and backtrack. I mean, which I guess you kind of sort of have to, but... You got to do it. But Deny, deny, deny. But he did nothing wrong. Everything he said was true. <laughs> deny, 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 deny. Backtrack. Uh, That's always do. That's what publicists always do. You can't embrace it. You have to... <laughs> you, you always have to basically go, I'm sorry I said that. Especially Donald Trump, and then he just well, basically go, "What?" Did you double down, right? Did you double down? Well, what what he did say, 
um, uh, what was it? He said I use a poor choice of words. And he said that our, our game is, you know, very popular, at least in part because of the physical nature of the game, you know, whatever. Um, where he kind of said the same thing, but very much more clinically <laughs> than he said it before, uh, with a lot more caution and care. The game because of the physical nature of it. Again, going back to my, again, my domestication argument. It's it, the fact that it's hard to be a safety anymore, or my main oh. argument why there's a huge disconnect between the safeties that people aspire to want versus the safeties that actually practically can work. And I say that because there's players every year, and you know this well, who are big time hitters and they make highlight hits and they do all that kind of stuff. I like like a hand grenade, yes. (laughs) I enjoy watching that. But in the NFL, you do hit like that, get flagged, penalty. The first time Miles Cannabrew practically eviscerates Antonio Brown, <laughs> if he ever does so, you know, to get, yes, every flag from every official is going to be thrown. Exactly. And that, again, speaks to, again, the domestication of, I, I don't know, it, we're – as anything, humans have weird systems up that we construct and we kind of like, it's violent, but if we make it less violent, it's okay, but it's still violent. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know where we'll be in 10 years, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely I definitely can understand why people might view his words and then go, oh. But at the same time, I... I the name of the general manager of the Buffalo Bills. People discovered he was black also. I think a lot of people did not know that about that. Well, uh, even if they knew the name. So th- those are two important things. Uh, he's one of the younger and, and blacker general managers in the NFL. I think people sort of discovered. That's the other funny thing about this whole situation. Not some crusty old school guy like Jim Finks. You know, stuff. Yeah. Some, some guy who's been in the GM since 1960. 79, he said yeah, he's this. kind of a young guy. Yeah, I mean, Doug Whaley's younger than I am. He's, yeah. I think he's early 40s. Yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting that it's not some, you know, Ted Thompson type who was a 10-year NFL linebacker saying this, you know, who, I don't know exactly how old Ted is, but I think he's got to be pushing 60. Wasn't that guy. You know, it was this guy who's 20 years younger and not that he's never played football, but he's not a guy who had a long NFL career like like Ted Thompson or something like that. It's a guy who people look at as sort of a suit, you know, <laughs> to some extent, who said it. So, but yeah, he said obvious things, and then there was controversy for reasons, uh, as you like to say. <laughs> and, uh, and then he sort of kind of walked back away from obvious Things that but are again, undeniable what you truth. What you do? <laughs> what you do? Yeah. 
what you do. Even if you're right, you gotta. <laughs> yeah, and he did. He did. He did. He played the game the way the game is now played. But well, playing the game, uh, didn't, he never said that to begin with. But yeah, yeah, I guess that's a good point. He would have just said, you know, this, our game is great. Uh, Sammy Watkins, you know, is working harder than ever before. We believe this will be his best recovery. year. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the, he would have just have to say, we always complain on maybe we, maybe, maybe it's me. There's not all of us, but I always complain when, you know, people just speak constantly in football platitudes and, you know, working hard, one game, all the stuff they say, playing within ourselves, whatever, you know, all that stuff that you hear, you know, go Hawks, all the stuff that you hear them just sort of fall back on and non-answers. So it bothers me when a guy, right, it bothers me when a guy actually says something, though to me it's not, you know, something that. It's from the heart. Right, and not really shocking at all to me, but, uh, and now, you know, like I said, you're never going to get a decent quote out of Doug Whaley again, again ever, you know, so good job. <laughs> again, the ESPN has something to talk about. I mean, they're losing personality left and right, so they got to do their thing. I don't know. And this, this, uh, that's what you do, but, yeah, sucks. But, you know, you ain't fired, you know. No, yeah. no, no. No, he's so he's very, he's very Del Stavi and sort of experience that he'll learn from. Yeah. Yes, well, he, up, no sure he has learned from it. He's still Doug Whaley. He's still Doug Whaley. Even after all this, still Doug Whaley. <laughs> still the DM of the Buffalo Bill. Nothing's changed. Right, and now, but the, what's changed is that people now know, uh, one, he is the DM of the Buffalo Bill, and two, that he's black. So those two things, <laughs> that's what thing. really... <laughs> you know... I, to be honest, I not to say I didn't know who the GM and Buffalo Bills were, but it wasn't something I readily thought about. In, in other words, like I wasn't like, oh, he's black. Wow. Well, I, you know, obviously I was aware uh, because I kind of tried to keep track of the number. Um, you know, <laughs> hey, hello, Sashi Brown. You know, so we've got a few, uh, but you know, Rod Graves and a few others, but and Rod Graves is sort of more of a. Shares it with Steve Time a little bit, but whatever. The uh, the point is that Doug Whaley, so as you pointed out, you know, probably was nice to be a household name prior to this, uh, is now certainly more well known than he's ever been before. Uh, so that yeah. is, that, we, it's actually that. good to him. I mean, in terms of yes. now, of course, talent acquisition. Look, I mean, isn't always the GM. You know, there's obviously other people doing things that are contributing to it, but they've been pretty good at drafting. Yeah, I mean, in the few. Yeah, in the couple of years he's been there, uh, almost all of the roster moves have ended up being the right move. Uh, you know, they they haven't had too many where you go, oh, what were they thinking? You know, first do no harm. <laughs> so he's done a good job of that. First, you know, not mess, not messing it up, which is sort of the first challenge. But... Uh, Moving on, as I was going to mention, we're going to talk running backs, tight ends, and I guess if there's fullbacks left in the world, uh, we'll toss fullbacks in as well. Uh, there's, there's enough tight ends that there's almost enough to have a tight end show by itself, but not quite enough. So we'll kind of lump them together. I sort of ran through some of the running backs uh, just before you, you hopped on. The perception is that there's 
as there often is. There's a, you know, some elite type guys. People used to throw out names like, uh, you know, Cook, Chubb, Cornette in whatever order. And then there's the possession, there's a bit of a drop off, yeah, right. but then, right, in the cafe, right, right, right. And then the possession, there's a drop off, and then you've got some other really good backs, but they're not quite with the others. Now, Jalen Hurd, to me, might be in that first group as well. Obviously, you know, this year will be determinant of, of just how much he might get a chance to be in that top tier. I really like Elijah Hood more than I guess a lot of people do, but I, I, I think he's a potential first down, first down, potential first round running back if he has a, a big year and is healthy. But looking at, I mean, the actual seniors who get very little discussion, um, and then, of course, the junior class of running backs, uh, one, what have you noticed so far? So it's sticking out to you as you look at the shape, size, whatever trivia you of the class in terms of who the players are, the kind of players they are, and how it compares to previous years? Well, it's a really good class. Um, yep. I mean, now a lot will be, you know, determined if the juniors declare or not, which, I mean, they're going to declare. The only guy I think might not declare is McCaffrey. That's just because he's so young, you know, like. Right, and he, he loves just, being a college student. Yeah, so he he might be a guy who stays in school another year, which, of course, people will go, you can't do that, you're a running back, dude. But, yeah, Uh, (laughs) but I'm I'm a big, again, I I really like McCaffrey. Uh, I I don't know why there's such a uh, a disconnect with him for whatever reason. There seems to be people that view him as like, oh, he's just a – "Quote unquote third down know, back, third down Base back player, yes, all Base those players. Yeah. Um, but he can run inside. He has power. He's burst. He has pop. Um, he has all all the kind of stuff. Pretty much has all the stuff in the toolhouse that like Ezekiel Elliott has. It's just he's not quite as big as Ezekiel Elliott, you know. But that's really about it, you know. Um, and obviously, special teams prowess is big, big, big time in terms of uh, affecting things." Uh, on special teams side of the thing. Fournette is honestly Fournette is kinda to me he's like a LeGarrette Blunt esque runner but without the character stuff. Hundred percent. Of course I don't know if there's character stuff with Fournette or not. But uh I you know, because he's at L S U but he's, you know, big, he pass for his size. Um there's definitely people that are like, eh, about certain things in terms of like pass, catching the pass and doing stuff like that, but they don't really do that much for the back at least right now. And they're, they also have another back on the roster that I know some people are like, he's going to take his job and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> for whatever reason. But I, I do, I don't think he's Adrian Peterson, of course, which is the hype that he got, but I do think he's a really good back. Uh, Cook is similar in terms of that. Cook reminds me a lot of DeMarco Murray, really, um, when I was watching him uh, play a lot. He's fast. Uh, he's also a little stiffish, a little stiffish, but not, like, incredibly stiff. He's a little stiffish, but he's fast. Um, and that that's his big sort of thing. Um, and he's had a lot of injuries and stuff like that. Uh, not a ton, but it's 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 
injured to the point of affecting his game because he has played through injury, uh, which does show toughness, but at the same time, it affects him on the field, which is something that whenever injury affects your play on the field, normally that means you're, to me, you're not, you know, you should be recovering instead of playing on the field, you know, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, Chubb, I like Chubb. That knee injury was horrific. It, uh, it was the type of injury that, like McGahee, it's like all the other sort of knee injuries that you see that you're like, ooh, ooh, type of thing. But he's definitely another guy, very very Christy Michael-ish, but faster in terms of Chubb. Um, if, if he's healthy, I think he, he's going to contribute to the class well. Uh, I like her. I like Jalen Hurts, but I'm waiting on him to take the big jump in terms of uh, production. Because um, Tennessee's been a team, which I don't know why. It could be a coaching thing, could be whatever. But they they seem to be a team that that hasn't had a guy emerge as the total offensive package. Hurts has definitely been a part of their offense, but he hasn't put his stamp on the offense in a way that I kind of want a really good workers back to do. Um, but he definitely is a guy who has very good physical talent. In terms of all that kind of stuff, uh, Royce Freeman is a fun back out of Oregon um, who might get some more plug and stuff like that. Uh, Donald Pumphrey from San Diego State is a senior back that I, I actually like coming in. Um, Brian Hill from Wyoming. Is also kind of decent in terms of what he's asked to do. Any other guy? There's there's other there's other running backs that haven't really done anything, but people seem to think they are. That makes any sense. Like Alabama's new running back, people are like, oh, he's gonna be the next guy when he hasn't really even started that much. Uh, and then there's also, again, the situation at LSU where there's a back behind Cornette that people think is going to be the guy, which I don't think is going to happen, but they keep to get that. But, uh, yeah, I think the class overall, running back class-wise, I think it's a really good class. Uh, I think there's three three backs in general to four backs that could be really good NFL starters. And then there's a lot of, Depth to pass that in terms of workhorse guys. So I mean, it's it could be better than the 15 class at running back, at least in my opinion. Um, it has potential going into it, but it also depends on you know who declares and who doesn't declare and stuff like that. Uh, hello? Yep. So, oh. Jim, did you, in terms of just the the size, uh, obviously you had one really big back and 
you know, we had some smaller backs than one running back last year, or last year, meaning just as recently draft, who was just right, and, and obviously Ezekiel Elliott. Have you have you noticed any sort of a trend, or I don't know if it's a trend, but I mean, this is a very large running back group, most likely to be in this draft in terms of sheer physical frame also. This is a, I mean, there's a couple of 240-pounders, 230-pounders, 225-pounders plus. Do you think that's just simply cyclical? Because obviously, you know, nobody's lining up and just sort of cramming it down someone's throat anymore except maybe short yard goal is kind of situations. So what do you... I mean, I don't even know all the numbers that stuff that you do, but when you do, I'd like to know how this class stacks up just in terms of physical size. Physical size. Um, I mean, I'll have to get back to you on that. Size isn't a thing I care about that much, um, only in the sense that when I've looked at size and, and, and stuff like that, it, there hasn't been any uh, major correlation. You just don't want a guy who's too small. You don't want a back that's like 180 pounds. But if the back is 200 pounds and up, 205, 210, um, those are those are guys that usually have. I mean, that's the sweet spot anyway. So I just I don't know. I, I'm just not a very not a subscriber to the whole. I know there's been many people that have done things and they're like size matters. Look at this. I don't think their sample sizes are big enough. <laughs> because from everything I've seen, I mean, there definitely is a point where you're too small to be a workhorse, but most of the workhorses in the NFL uh, over the last 20 years have been anywhere from 200 pounds to 250 pounds. You know, so I, I don't – and longevity-wise, there wasn't really a major uh, – difference. And also, a little bit of that's also because of mass density, you know, because if you have a back who's like 5'8 or 5'9 and he weighs 210 pounds, that's similar to a back that's like 5'11 or 6' who's 220 pounds, 215. Um, as far as this guy, yeah, there's a lot of big backs. You know, there's a lot of guys that have, have uh, NFL size, as they like to call it, uh, or coach coaches like size at the running back position. Um, for, at least in my opinion, they like size because it makes them feel better about the back lasting longer. But that's, I don't know, I, I just said the approach that size is more of a psychological thing for people when it comes to backs. If the back is big, they think, oh, he'll last longer, he'll have more longevity because he's bigger, which isn't always the case. At least they don't know how that works, I guess. Because there's a lot of backs who are that size that don't work out, you know. So. And you may have mentioned Christian McCaffrey. Are there other guys that you see, whether they be juniors or seniors, coming into this next season that can give you running back things, maybe some wide receiver things, return special things? Have you seen some other guys that you think? Have the chance to be special, at least in part because of how versatile they are. Versatility, yeah. Um, I mean, Donald Pumphrey's versatile. 
back. Uh, oh, Elijah yeah. McGuire, you know, from Lafayette versus all in terms of what he can bring to the table. Uh, I've got him to every single place. Corey Columbia is kind of personal, a little bit. Corey Columbia, yep, Wisconsin. Um, uh, but, yeah, I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that. I mean, there, there definitely uh-huh. is a lot of uh, – I mean, Cook can definitely catch the football in the backfield. Uh, Fournette can as well, but Fournette is kind of a Derrick Henry, Melvin, um, Gordon-ish sort of, which they, they hate me. The, the Melvin Gordon folks and the Derrick Henry folks hate me because I say that they can receive. Again, I give points to Derrick Henry for receiving, but I don't give them points for being a dynamic receiver. You know, I mean, he, he can catch the ball and run with it, but He's not always going to make you miss or do some crazy, ridiculous thing with the ball in his hands once he catches it. He might get you five yards here or something. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's him. But, yeah, McCaffrey just is the sort of does everything, and for some reason that's a problem, which I don't see it as such. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he can do pretty much everything. You have to be the inside runner, outside runner. Uh, catching the football, the backfield, and everything else. So. Got it. <clears throat> uh, who are some Who are some of your favorites? I mean, obviously, you talk about some of the guys that you've noticed. If you were starting a team, or if you were running a draft room for a team, how would you stack them? Obviously, it's very early, but thus far, and you know, who do you? Who, which guys do you want, and why? Hmm. I mean, I know I might be on an island on this, but I would want McCaffrey number one. Um, main reasons why, uh, I think in terms of his vision as a runner, really good, has burst, has speed, really, you know, really good inside runner, really good outside runner, um, has power, great tackles, uh, can catch himself out of the backfield, can do special teams. Uh, and can pretty much, I mean, he's basically been utilized as much as the Fournette, as much as the Cook, as much as the Chubb. Um, but I just think the, I just think in today's NFL, in terms of the passing game and everything else, you can do a lot more things with McCaffrey. I also am a really big fan, of course, Cook. I think Cook's speed uh, and his, you know, his ability to kind of get out in space and, and uh, outrun people is something that not everybody can do. Um, uh, he is dynamic from that kind of standpoint. Uh, I like that a lot. I think he's just a fun back to watch in terms of how he plays in space. And uh, Joe, you know, I like Joe a lot. Uh, hope, hopefully the injury stuff gets you know, not a big deal, but that's kind of how I would stack it: is McCaffrey and then Cook, Burnett, and then Chubb, and sort of that order. And then the rest is just kind of a mismatch of, uh, of guys you could potentially start, uh, but they just haven't really shown me everything yet.
Okay. Any, I kind of know the answer, but last night, any sort of hybrid HVAC types that might have caught your eye, guys? It might be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Hybrid HVAC types. Are you talking about pocket tight ends? Right, correct. Yes, <laughs> that's the term you use. Yes, that's the that's yes, exactly. Those guys. Um, I mean, I hate to be the sort of generic answer of uh, Evan Ingram, but I mean, that's you know, technically a pocket tight end. I mean, um, OJ Howard is a pocket tight end. Is he just is not very big? I mean, tall, maybe. He might. I mean, do you think he's legit? Five with Howard, or yeah, I I've always wondered exactly how one calculates some of these things, but I, I certainly agree with a lot of what you said, and I I literally still sometimes forget about McCaffrey and make you know list of top senior running back, so I will definitely spend you know more time on that and less time on you know stuff that he can't do anything about. Oh and Billy Freeman too. This is a another pocket type San Jose State. Another short guy. So, yeah, sort of back to what I was saying, who who do you think is going to be the sort of stars versus contributors, and, and who do you think will be the, you know, contributors as opposed to stars, and who do you think will be, I don't know, after that, I don't know, Nicaragua, whatever it is, the next step will be. Uh, how do you think that will end up happening? Or why? Uh, with who? Uh, well, I think pick one. Uh, pick Pick uh, favorites or whatever, guys that you like and why. Oh, well, again, McCaffrey. I, I like McCaffrey for speed, the versatility. I like Cook for speed. I like Fournette for the running style, at least. You know, because he had some of those. He had some of those runs. You, you remember that run, right, where he put his helmet into the guy's chest and he kept running? which was kind of reminiscent of another running back from Texas area. But um, so there's that. And, and then Joe, I mean, those, those are my favorite, at least in this class. Got it. So, huh, now I'll back, move to that in time. 
Oh, well, move tight end. Evan Ingram, Billy Freeman. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's just for you, so far at least. So far at least, yeah. Okay. You know, I like Freeman, I like Ingram. I don't think Ingram is uh, – there's been a contingent of people that think that he's the next uh, uh, Aaron Hernandez, but I don't think so yet. But there is that contingent out there that thinks that he's the next Aaron Hernandez type. Yep. Uh, and then traditional, quote-unquote, inline-wise, who do you like amongst that group and why, yeah, amongst the full-service tight ends, maybe the terms of the here you use as well? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's really a mismatch of guys. There's a lot of guys. Uh, I mean, Jake Butt is your traditional inline guy, but kind of limited. I don't know. I went back and watched Jake Butt a lot, and I think he might be one of those tight ends that has one of those falls eventually. Like, other tight ends are going to do more spectacular things than him, um, if that makes any sense. I mean, I like what Jake Butt does as a, as a true inline guy, but I just don't think he's special in many ways. Um, Howard doesn't have the size and he has speed, but doesn't really have the size. Uh, blocking is also kind of iffy, but, you know, who blocks anymore as a tight end? But, yeah, that's sort of an issue. Uh, Jeremy Sprinkle, Arkansas, is another, uh, a guy that I've been on for a while now. Hopefully this is the year he finally does his thing, but uh, he's, he's another sort of traditional inline guy that I uh, like in this class, so. Right.
So when you look at a year like last year, well, this last, this most recent class, where there was a conversation that usually dealt with, but next year, you've seen more of this machine that requires work. So you clearly, you know, Raider fan, right? You have running backs. Uh, there are teams that still don't really have running backs, and there's this sort of generally agreed upon mass delusion that you can find running backs anywhere, and who needs to spend draft picks or the early draft picks of running backs. How many running backs do you, con- do you reasonably believe could be first-rounders, some of the guys you've studied so far in the groups we're talking about? Did I lose you, Jim? Oh, okay. I did. Okay, so uh, we had Jim, and we lost Jim. But uh, the... Just sort of to wrap up, I guess, because the uh, some of the other uh, guys that um, I like and I think have a chance to be somewhere between good and perhaps even very, very good coming out. Uh, some of them, I guess the guys I'm going to mention now are all pretty much seniors. Uh, Treat Cohen, obviously, from NC Central was discussed already, sort of a water bug type. Uh, the uh, Tremaine McCullough from uh, Southeast Missouri State, another member of my uh, whole underappreciated team. Uh, some people have sort of awakened to D'Angelo Henderson, running back from North Carolina, and Deshaun Jones, but Campbell, uh, running back as well. Uh, a few other guys worthy of note. Uh, Lenore's footman, well, he's a quarterback, but the assumption is that he'd be moving positions, changing positions uh, to play at the next level. 
see. Is anybody else really? Oh, um, Tyvis Smith from U and I. U and I something of a something of a factory. At least a uh, football factory, sort of amongst the um, FCS level. So those of them guys keep an eye out. But yeah, it's a um you know mixed bag, I guess. But the belief is, and I think there's some credence to it, is that it's a a deeper, more diverse, bigger, you know, larger, physically larger, as well as more guys who have the ability to play. Uh, in this particular draft class. You know, so that's sort of the, some of the things that stand out about the class is the number of good guys who are big guys or good guys who are big or however you want to put it. It's a good class for, for big backs and as well as just a good overall class for uh, running backs of whatever size and shape. You know, so I'll just hit a few more guys and then we'll wrap. The couple more guys just sort of touch upon um, uh, Derek Crane of UT Chattanooga is another really good running back. Uh, He has a little bit of good description, a good uh, um, comparison. I'm still working on some of these guys. I have some more work to do on on most of them, but very good running back, very good, uh, productive, good size. Um, I think good size, you know, probably about 205, probably almost 5 foot 10. Uh, good frame. Has enough speed. Can get you the, the you know, the quote-unquote hard yards. You know, not not at all, you know, too small or too, you know, wispy or whatever it is to, to bust it up in there and, and, and do the hard stuff. Um, but a guy like I said can do you know, a little bit of everything. That's a guy I think is a good chance. Another, he's a second teamer, all underappreciated. You know, so I have, uh, you know, like I said, I have every reason to believe he'll end up doing great things. I'm certainly looking for looking for big things from him. Uh, let's see. Who else did I want to make sure I touched upon? There's a few others that are certainly worthy of mention. Uh, let's 
see. I mentioned Elijah Hood earlier. I mentioned sort of searching through my brain of all the wingbacks <laughs> that I've liked on takes. Oh, yes. Um, I, there's a few small school guys. Obviously, I spend probably a little more time and attention on small school guys than most, so I'll make sure that I, I hit about 10 guys or 5 to 10 that I really think have a chance. Uh, the younger brother, and he's actually just a junior, uh, but a lot of the issues with his with Cameron McDonald, he was considered not fast enough. Uh, that won't be an issue with his similar but faster brother, Bernard. Um, another guy worthy of mention is uh, Austin Eckler from Western uh, State. A you know a once again a guy with some versatility and that he can do more than you know just one thing. Uh, has some shiftiness. You know, a guy that can make people miss. Uh, he has some uh, toughness, even though he's not the biggest kid in the world. Uh, probably not a guy that'd be an every down, you know, 15, 20. I mean, he's a thickly built, you know, he's 5'7 and change, but he's almost 200 pounds. He's like 196 or something pounds. And, you know, Eric B. Enemy leaps to mind. Uh, obviously, if you're in the younger set, I guess you'll go with a different comparison, but I think he has a chance. Probably won't be drafted just because he's Division Two, and, you know, obviously not the biggest cat in the world, but there's a lot to like in my mind with him. Uh, Andre Anderson is another guy that is definitely worthy of mention uh, from New Haven. Another guy that has components, you know, good, good components. And um, B.J. Anderson, I mean, B.J. Anderson, sorry, B.J., um, uh, it's Andre Anderson, but uh, that, actually he's a guy I very much like. And a guy I like almost as much is uh, uh, B.J. McCoy, is what I'm trying to say for sure. But Anderson is a guy that once again, gives you that versatility. Uh, comes, you know, I don't know, clutch is the term that you like to think of. But he's a guy that seems to have a knack for making big plays when a big play must be made. He seems to be pretty good at coming through with that. And while he's not exactly a giant, I mean, obviously most of the Division two running backs seem to almost always be, you know, 5'10 to 5'7. Uh, and, you know, 180-something to 200 pounds, and he sort of falls right in there at, you know, 5'7 and change and about 195 pounds, and you'll see that come up a lot. He's the kind of guy that even if he's not drafted, he'll be in somebody's camp, and I think he'll, he'll stick around. I think he has, you know, once again, components. He has, despite being not a very big guy, he has some power, he has some wiggle. Um, you know, he's got talent. I mean, just to put it very, very plainly, he's a guy who has talent. He has enough talent that he could make an NFL roster, whether or not he, um, you know, becomes a starter or a star or whatever at the next level. And once again, another guy that, despite not being, you know, an enormous guy, 
tremendously strong. Uh, just a powerful, powerful football player. And that's a mistake I think some people make is that they, they don't realize that a a smaller player can still be a power player. I mean, Maurice Jones-Drew is a great example. You know, he certainly had a lot of whatever you want to call it stuff, <laughs> whatever tree like he used, uh, because of his size, but he certainly had, you know, a level of talent. And like I said, he was more than just a lot of power, pure power player in a lot of ways. His frame, was he wasn't ever little, he was just short. <clears throat> There's a difference. You know, he was, he was, he was, his height may not have been impressive, but, you know, a guy, once again, we're talking about a guy who was over 200 pounds. You know, just on a five, six, and change frame. But he, let's just say he made it work, right? He, uh, he made that work. I mean, he's, this guy's, uh, probably 212, maybe more. And, you know, once again, probably five, seven and a half or something, but a player with tremendous power. And, you know, to me, there's a, a place somewhere in the league, even if it's just special teams uh, for a guy like him. You know, powerful, productive guy. Uh, has played ever since he arrived at Shorter and has produced ever since he arrived at Shorter. Uh, you know, his, you know, worst game, you know, if you want to use the term, uh, was against Kennesaw. And yes, I guess you could use the term. I had 10 carries, only had 22 yards, so they balled him up pretty well. That was the only game all year where he's below 100, and he broke 200 twice. So I'll give you an idea of, uh, well, he's one one game, just how good he was most of the time. Yeah, so he's a, a guy who consistently was with the exception of really one game, was a very big part, uh, could be argued by some, maybe the biggest part of that offense that they have there. And I guess one sort of last, or one or two sort of last guys to mention at the, the running back position. Uh, at uh, Texas Commerce, Texas A&M Commerce, sorry, pardon me, uh, Texas A&M Commerce, and Richard Cooper. And this is another guy. I mean, once again, almost none of these guys are huge. That's certainly one of the differences of your spot between these guys physically and, you know, what you might see at, you know, Alabama or even Florida Atlantic. Uh, there is a, a physical difference. There's a size difference. But uh, that being said, Richard Cooper is a guy that there's a, there's enough, um, you know, there's enough of him physically and, you know, competitive, tough, Texas kid, you know, all the things that you want to throw out there. He is all of the above when it comes to that.
and you've been productive and a big part of one of the better D2 programs in, in the time that he's been at, at Texas A&M Commerce. And my anticipation is that he will be one of the leading rushers at the Division II level this year. I will be, if not shocked, then then somewhat surprised if he's not a guy with about, you know, 1,600 yards rushing and, you know, another maybe two, 300 yards in, in total offense. So, you know, I think big things are coming. You know, that's what I, I'm, although as far as they like said, that's my expectation. Um, that's what I'm, I see coming for him. And let's see, there's another guy maybe worth mentioning. Yes. Yes, there is. Um, another guy who's on my my second team older appreciated is Lawrence Elliott. I guess it's Lawrence Elliott Jr. to be exact. Um, who is at Bloomsburg, uh, one of the bigger running backs. I mean, he's not a giant, but he's over six feet tall, probably getting close to 210 pounds. You know, so there's reason to believe, you know, if somebody going to give him a chance and, and hopefully he gets that chance, I think he will open eyes once again. You know, division running backs really get drafted no matter what they do. But he certainly has a really good shot in my mind to at least get invited to camp. Might you know might be a guy that's signed as a priority draft free agent to be continues to play as well as he's played in the past. And as I said, you know he's, he's not tiny. You know there's a little bit of size to him. Um, he's been productive. Very good player. Has some of the like I said components, whatever term you want to use. Uh, Actual time speed will be a big deal because he's a division two running back. If he runs a bad time, then he's definitely not going to be drafted. If he runs a good time, he has a shot to be drafted. Uh, so I'll wrap with that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more. Probably we'll hit uh, offensive line. And then we'll be done with offense in terms of um, discussing the recent draft class and looking forward to 2000 and. 17 NFL draft, and then we'll do all the defensive positions starting the week after that. And then before you know it, we'll be previewing conferences, starting with the ACC and trying to go through, I guess, South Bedford. So uh, I want to thank Jim Coburn, who was with me earlier. And uh, obviously, once again, my thoughts, wishes, prayers, and everything will be with all those who uh, ever been, you know, lost a loved one or friend and those who served our country, and obviously those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, please take a moment to think of them on Memorial Day.